The English Civil Wars, 1639 to 1660. King William III of England, Part 2. And the end of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, or the English Civil War as well. When Ireland was settled, King William turned back to the great struggle in which he had been engaged before the invitation from England had reached him. The Thirty Years' War, which ended in 1648, had seen the decline of Spain and the rise of France as the greatest power in Europe. Now under her king, Louis XIV, France was at the summit of her pride and ambition, pushing out her frontiers towards the Rhine. This brought French troops into the Spanish Netherlands, present-day Belgium, and within striking distance of Holland. William was determined to check their advance, and the struggle raged for the fortress towns of the south of Brussels. English troops were fighting side by side with those of Holland, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire in a grand alliance against France. There were no big battles, but every year William was with his troops, hammering at the forts which guarded the road in the France. His only major success came in 1695 when the fortress of Namur surrendered, the first big blow to the French prestige. But the Allied army saved Holland from invasion and forced the French to terms at the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697. Louis had to recognize William as the King of England and promised to withdraw his support of James. The war at sea, however, was more exciting. The French aim was to knock out England by invasion. The English fleet, increased in size and in efficiency by James II, was ready to defend the English coasts and blockade France. The first engagement fought off Beachy Head in June of 1690 was indecisive, and the English admiral was dismissed for holding back his ships. But in 1691, the French assembled an invasion army at Cape La Hogue, where James II joined it. The commander of the English fleet was Edward Russell, one of the peers who had signed the invitation to William. When the French warships came out to sweep the channel clear so that the transport troops could cross, Russell sent 15 to the bottom in a battle that lasted for several days and so crippled the rest of the French fleet that England was free from danger of invasion for the rest of the war. The French, recognizing this, played the much more profitable game of pouncing on English merchant ships. Jean Bart, the most successful of the French captains, became almost as much of a legend in his own country as Drake had been to England in the century earlier. Eight years of war cost more than the Stuart kings could ever have laid their hands on. This, rather than the statute, tied William to the commons. The government could not raise enough in taxation and had to borrow on a large scale. Rich merchants would have been hesitant about lending money to the king alone, since the kings had a poor record of paying back debts. But they were prepared to lend when Parliament guaranteed repayment. This led to, in 1694, the foundation of the Bank of England, which raised money and lent it to the government with Parliament's approval, at a handsome rate of interest. More and more businessmen put their capital into the bank, and this made them keen supporters of the Glorious Revolution. They knew that if James returned, they would never see their money again. In this way, the merchants, who were among the richest men in the kingdom, were at last persuaded to put their money at the service of the state. Loans from the Bank of England paid for the campaign which led to the capture of Namur, and by time peace was signed, the government had piled up a large national debt on which it paid yearly interest. By the end of William's reign, the, money, the amount of money paid out in interest alone was equal to Charles II's entire annual income. Only the commons could finance this scale of spending. They voted the king's income for a year at a time and took over responsibility for financing the war. 
Following the example set after the Second Dutch War, they appointed commissioners in 1691 to examine the government's accounts and made sure that large sums of money voted were not being wasted. Stuart kings had found their parliament unwilling to vote more than a mere fraction of the cost of their wars. But now William was committed to a nationalist Protestant foreign policy of which Parliament approved, and the Commons were prepared to vote money on a larger scale than any time before. The King was still very powerful, of course. He appointed and dismissed ministers as he wished, and he had the right, which he exercised, to refuse his assent to any bill which he disapproved. If there had been no wars, he might have been an independent as Charles II, but the overriding need for money forced him to cooperate with Parliament. He had no alternative. If he was to defeat France, he could not in any case rely on almost religious devotion to the crown, which the Stuarts had encouraged. The Anglican Tories accepted him, but only reluctantly. They kept their enthusiasm for Mary, and after her death in 1695, waited impatiently for Anne to come to the throne. The Whigs were more enthusiastic supporters of William, but this was not much comfort to the king, since the Whigs were believers in parliamentary supremacy. Their attitude was most clearly expressed by the philosopher John Locke, formerly secretary to the Earl of Shaftesbury. He dismissed divine right as nonsense and held that kings ruled because their subjects wished them to do so. If they ruled badly, the terms of the agreement were broken up and their subjects had the right to get rid of them. When in 1700 Anne's only surviving child died, there was a dismal prospect of uncertain succession. Anne would succeed William, but who would succeed Anne? Parliament determined to settle this question before squabbles could break out over it. There were several descendants of Charles I to whom the crown might have been offered, but they were mostly Roman Catholics. The most satisfactory Protestant claimant was Sophia, wife of the German prince, the Elector of Hanover. She was descended from James I through his daughter Elizabeth, the Winter Queen. By the Act of Settlement of 1701, Parliament decreed that the throne of England was to pass on Anne's death to Sophia, and her descendants. This act, as well as deciding the succession, also placed further restrictions on the monarch. In this way, Parliament completed the revolution of 1688. Future sovereigns were to be members of the Church of England. They were not to dismiss judges except as par at Parliament's request. Neither were they to pardon any minister whom the Commons had impeached. They were not even to leave the country without Parliament's approval. William resented these new limitations, but he could do nothing about it, for the uneasy peace concluded as Ryswick was one was coming to an end. In 1700, the King of Spain died, leaving no children. He named as his heir the great possessions of the Spanish crown to the grandson of Louis XIV. William might have been willing to agree to this had not Louis immediately moved troops into the Spanish Netherlands and made it clear that he intended to treat them as his own. France, with this new attempt to dominate Europe, William reformed the Grand Alliance against France. The War of Spanish Succession was about to begin, and the English succession was also at stake, since on the death of the exiled James II, Louis recognized his son, James III, as the lawful King of England. William prepared to join his armies, but he was not to see the end of his life's work. In February of 1702, his horse stumbled on a molehill and threw him while he was riding at Hampton Court. He only broke his collarbone, but the strain of ill health and long struggles against the English Parliament and the French King had weakened him. By March the 8th, he was dead, and Anne, daughter of James II and granddaughter of Clarendon, became 
the Queen of England. And of course, Anne would be the last of the Stuart sovereigns. So that ends this long task that we've been taking on looking at the causes and events involved in the English Civil War. Next week, we'll have to have something new. Now the sources for this, same ones that I've been using, History of England by Thornton Lockyer and Smith, History of England by Wilson, and various other books on the various kings. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.